0: Last time Pastor took off on a Wednesday and left me a parable, he gave me an easy one, the Good Samaritan. This week, even after teaching it this morning, I still don't know that I fully grasp the parable that we're going to be looking at uh, today. I was joking with Ken before the service started and he picked up the notes this morning and this evening, and even in between, I changed the title um, of the notes because I just didn't care for how most of your commentaries approached this one. They would title it The Unworthy Servant. Um, but as we look through this parable, I don't know that we see anything unworthy about the servant. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. And as we read through these 10 verses, there may be things that sound similar. Um, Matthew chapter 18 is Matthew's record of many of these same conversations that Jesus is having along the way. He is on his way back to Jerusalem. Chapter 16 of the book of Luke, as we saw last week and the previous weeks, Jesus is dealing and talking primarily to the scribes, to the Pharisees, warning about the riches of the day and not seeking after those riches. But when we get to chapter 17, Christ turns his attention from the crowds that are following. And addresses his disciples directly. He says in verse 1 Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible but that the offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostle said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If ye had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this sycamine tree, or a mulberry tree would be the type of tree that he's referring to there. Be thou plucked up by the root, and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, and here's the parable, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meat? And will he not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he the master thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded to him? I trow not. Okay, or if we were to modernize that, the Pastor Brian version, I don't think so, is what Jesus is saying. So likewise ye, talking to the disciples, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. When you come to this parable, many of the commentaries will deal with this parable in Luke chapter 17, verses 7 through 10, by just completely ignoring that it's in there. Most of your commentators are like, yeah, we're not going to worry about this one. You guys can figure it out on your own. You know, if you remember watching the Muppet Christmas Carol when the third ghost comes in, the ghost of Christmas yet to come, Gonzo and Rizzo basically tell you as the audience, this is too scary for us. We're leaving. We'll see you in the finale. We'll see you at the end credits. And they leave. That's basically where commentators are going to put us on this one. You guys can figure this out. Good luck. And so hopefully we'll be able to figure it out together this evening, looking at these introductory comments first of all. As we've already mentioned, Jesus has spoken, turned his attention from the crowd, and he addresses his disciples directly, warning them it is impossible, but that offenses Will come, and that word, their offenses, is the Greek word scandala, which is oftentimes translated temptations. It's also used or has the idea of things that cause people to stumble. So Jesus is starting off in this chapter warning his disciples of the inevitability of temptations or stumbling blocks that will cause people to turn from the faith. Okay, it is impossible, but that these temptations will come. It's impossible, it's going to happen. People are going to be presented with the reality of the scriptures, the reality of the gospel, and they are going to flat out reject it. And here he is referring to the objects, these offenses and we see this in throughout the new testament matthew chapter 13 jesus speaking prophetically says the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend or these angels are going to come through and any excuse really that people will give for why they are rejecting christ are going to be removed Anything that will cause an individual to look at your life and say, if they're a Christian and this is how they're living, I don't want anything to do with that. And those are going to be gone. In Romans chapter 14, Paul, dealing with the church at Rome, addresses them. He says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. The church at Rome was getting to the point where you would have what we would say the gray areas of the scripture. Okay, there are certain things that the scriptures are black and white, this is right, this is wrong. There are other things where it's a little bit fuzzy, Okay, where good Christians can differ. But what the Church of Rome was doing is they were taking those fine details that weren't specified and making those areas where if you disagree with me on this, you're like an infidel. Okay, if we look at, I hate to use this example, but it works, politicians today. Okay, if you are a Republican, anyone who th- smells like a Democrat is the devil. If you are a Democrat, anyone who smells like a Republican is the devil, and there's no middle ground, there's no understanding that, you know what, we can agree to disagree and still be cordial on these things. And this was happening so much with the church at Rome that these issues, that these contentions were actually causing people to say, if this is what God's people do, I want nothing to do with it. You know, if they're going to fight over things that don't matter, why do I want to get involved with them? But judge this rather, Paul says, that no man put a stumbling block... Okay, a temptation, a scandala, or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. This idea of there's plenty about the gospel that's going to offend people that Christians don't have to put ourselves in that position as well. Okay, if we can put it this way, you can clearly present the gospel to someone And it can be done in a way that's going to completely shut them off from the gospel. You can be right, but we can be wrong at the exact same time. And Jesus is warning these temptations are going to come, but he also gives a stern condemnation, is the second blank there, against those who provide those stumbling blocks, While those offenses are going to come, Christ pronounces a special woe on those through whom those stumbling blocks come. You know, the certainty of such offenses does not exempt one from the responsibility to make sure that we're not doing that. As we go through life, we have our blind spots. Okay, if I can Use myself as a negative example, okay? Don't do this. John, John, you keep your mouth closed because I don't think this ever happened with you in the classroom. But when you're a teacher, there are certain things you need to communicate during the class time. And sometimes children will act up. And sometimes those children need to be called out for acting up. But sometimes it is very easy if you have continual run-ins with the same student to, as a teacher, say, this student is a problem student. They're never going to get it anyway, so I'm just going to completely write them off since they're not going to get it anyway. What Jesus is saying is, listen, those stumbling blocks are going to come, but you make sure you are not one of those stumbling blocks. He doesn't specifically state what the condemnation is, what is going to happen, but he warns the disciples greatly of what those consequences are by saying, here's what it would be, it would be better for this to happen. Okay, it would be better off if instead of, as I'm living my life, And I may be living my life to the best of my abilities, but I'm living my life in a way that is turning other people off to the scriptures. And they say, if that Steinbach is a Christian, I want nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus says it would be better off if I had a millstone tied around myself and I'm cast into the bottom of a lake. Okay, we're in close enough to Chicago, it would be better that I'd get a new pair of concrete sneakers and head off of Navy Pier than for me to keep living my life, living in such a way that individuals are going to see what a Christian is doing and say, I want nothing to do with that. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, Jesus says the same thing, "...whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me." Okay, they're st- talking specifically of children. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. And when we look at these little ones here in Luke chapter 17, okay, and we just remember the broader context... Of Luke's gospel. Within a couple of chapters, you have the story of the prodigal son. Okay, an individual who, on an age level, was a man, but an individual who, mentally and on the maturity level, was a child. That's who these little ones are. You have Lazarus and the rich man immediately preceding this. Lazarus, someone who couldn't take care of himself. Yeah, he was a full-grown adult, but he couldn't care for himself. So these individuals who aren't able to care for themselves that oftentimes we look at And we see how they're living their lives. If we were to look at the prodigal son living for himself, spending his father's inheritance, spending it all frivolously, most of us today would say this is an individual who is living for himself. He's on his way to hell. He knows it, and he's just enjoying life now. And we would write him off. But then we'd miss the best part of that story. Because what does that young, immature individual do? He comes to a point of maturity. And he comes back home, and what does his dad do? I'm sorry, you squandered it all year out. No, his dad receives him with open arms. And because these offenses are there, because people can easily become turned off to Christianity, Jesus tells the disciples at the beginning of verse 3 that they are to be vigilant, that they are living, we are living our lives in such a way that no one can adequately say, you know what, I was surrounded by these Christians and the way they lived, I wanted nothing to do with it. But Jesus continues his conversation with his disciples and he outlines a twofold responsibility that believers have with each other. And I promise I'm going to tie all of this together at the end. Okay? This may seem like one of those what in the world is going on type of a s- sermons. Okay? I promise that there is something that ties it all together and we'll get to that. But Jesus continues his conversation with them. If your brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Jesus moves the conversation to relationships within the community of believers. He began talking about our relationships with those outside of the faith, making sure that as believers we're living our lives so that we are not putting up stumbling blocks for people to reject Christ. But now he is dealing with the interpersonal relationships that we can say today we see within the church. If your brother trespass against thee, you, if your brother sins against you, we have a responsibility to rebuke that individual. If we go back to the language of Leviticus chapter 19, we see the opposite of confronting someone who sins against us. Leviticus 19 17, Moses writes, Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, and thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. If someone sins against us, if there's sin within the church, as believers, we have a responsibility to in, as Paul puts it in Galatians 6.1, in a spirit of meekness, in gentleness, go to that individual, confront them with their sin for the purpose of restoration. The first responsibility that believers have with each other is reproving sin. And this isn't just to call somebody out to make them look bad. Okay, Sometimes it's easy, and we see this way too easily on the political scale. Political leader does something that is even questionably wrong. And immediately, everyone on one side of the media or the other side of the media is pulling up how terrible of a person this individual is. They're calling out their wrongdoing. Why? So that they can make that person look bad. But as Christians, is that our motivation? Jesus says if he trespass against you, rebuke him because the purpose of this reproval is the restoration of the sinning believer. If we think over to Matthew chapter 18, Jesus develops this a little more fully. And Matthew 18 is where we develop our ideas and our concepts of church discipline. If your brother shall sin against you, you have a responsibility to, as an individual, go to him one-on-one, and try to make things right. And if he hears you, Jesus says you've gained a brother. But if not, what do you do? You go with two or three people. For what purpose? For that same purpose, for restoring that fellowship. And if he still doesn't hear you, then you take him before the church And if he refuses to hear the church, then you treat him as if he's an unbeliever. But I think here's where we sometimes lose our understanding in the 21st century. How are we supposed to treat unbelievers? As unbelievers, giving them the gospel, pleading with them to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the purpose of, if we can use the Catholic term excommunication from church membership is not just to get somebody out of the church. It is ultimately, we want to see this person restored. When Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says, to the point where you deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that his soul... May be saved. The purpose for church discipline, the purpose for this rebuke is restoration. It's not, ha, I'm a better Christian than you are. Look how bad this person is. But we want that restoration there. The second aspect, responsibility that believers have is a whole lot easier to say than it is to do. Jesus says, and if he repent, forgive him. It's a whole lot easier to say than it is to do. In fact, Jesus continues. He says, if he sins against you seven times in one day, well, then seven times in that day you forgive him. Following this up in Matthew chapter 18, Peter asks the great question, Okay, Jesus, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus' response is, no. Seventy times, seven times. And if we have our little black book of how many times someone has sinned against us and we get to 490, ah, that's the last time I have to forgive you. Have we really forgiven? And again, it's a whole lot easier to say than it is to do. If someone repeatedly sins against us, and Jesus here, again, he's referring to within the body of believers, if your brother trespass. Okay, if someone who is a believer sins against you, okay, if you think back to your own siblings as you were growing up, I had to stop myself from giving too many examples of this this morning, just because most of you know my brother's. But if your brothers or sisters were anything like mine, you can go days and days without any irritation at all. We're just one happy family unit. No, the oftentimes, seven, eight, 9, 10, 25, 490 times in a day, siblings can get under each other's skin. Oh, you know, Paul and Ephesians 4 tells us, Be angry, sin not, let not the sun go down on your wrath. You know, mend those relationships before the sun goes down. So here Jesus is talking about within the community of believers, you know, we are family as Christians, and sometimes we may inadvertently do things that may annoy one another. And the worst thing that can happen in a church is for an individual to just take those annoyances. Oh, this person did this to me again. This person did this to me again, and I just let those annoyances build up because I'm not forgiving. And pretty soon, I'm becoming bitter against that individual. And that bitterness doesn't just stay with me. Okay, the author of Hebrews warns us to take, or have guard, lest any root of bitterness. Because if I'm bitter against someone, I'm going to talk to Jeff about how bad that person is. And then I'm going to talk to Steve. And then Jeff's going to go home, and he's going to talk to Tanya, and Steve's going to go home, he's going to talk to Mary Jo, and pretty soon Mary Jo's talking, and and everyone is talking about how terrible this individual is, and this person is just saying, I had no idea that I did those things but you have a church that is ready to split and to divide. And so with these instructions that Jesus gives, you know, temptations, stumbling blocks are going to come. Make sure as believers we are living in such a way that they're not coming from you. When a brother sins against you, reprove him. When he asks for forgiveness, err on the side of forgiveness. You know, extend to him the act of charity. You know, is he really sorry? I don't think he really... No, yeah, he asked for forgiveness. I'm going to forgive. That's the attitude that we need to take. And in verses 5 and 6, the disciples make a statement to Jesus that seems to have absolutely nothing to do with what Jesus has just said. Okay? Okay. Don't live your life as a stumbling block. Don't put stumbling offenses out so people reject Christ. Don't hold grudges. Forgive one another. And the disciples, the first thing they say, they said unto the Lord, increase our faith. And if you're reading this the way I've read it several times, what does what this request, increase our faith, have to do with the commands that Jesus just gave? He's just spoken urgently about not causing others to stumble, forgiving others who sin against us. Why do these disciples need to ask for an increase in faith? I think what they're doing is, that first blank there under the disciples' request, it is a recognition of whether their faith is sufficient to live up to such a calling. You now, Jesus has laid a pretty lofty goal. And how are we supposed to meet that goal? Jesus, I need more faith than that. And Jesus tells them, even if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, okay, the smallest seed at that time that they would have known about, you could tell this mulberry tree, and mulberry trees have roots that go deep, roots that spread out to get up and move, and that mulberry tree is gone. And the real issue at hand here isn't whether or not the apostles or the disciples have enough faith, but it's whether they have any faith. Because as we go through our Christian lives, we recognize, for ourselves at least, that God is working on me. I'm not perfect. And each day I get up and each day I strive my best through the strength of the Spirit to live for God. Am I going to do it perfectly? No. Am I going to mess up? Absolutely. Am I going to inadvertently cause stumbling blocks? Possibly. Am I going to offend brothers in Christ? Probably. And you know what? Everybody that I'm looking at tonight, I'm hoping is doing the exact same thing. And I think we are. Each morning we wake up and we as believers strive to live for Christ the best that we can. So why do I need to have faith? Because it's not... I'm trusting myself to do these things. I'm trusting God to do this work in me. I also need to make sure that I'm trusting God to do the work in somebody else. Because it's easy for me to look at somebody else and say, oh man, they're not where they need to be. And they're not trusting God. They're, they're doing it wrong. But no, the same God that's working in me is the same God, Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that is doing that work in them as well. So as believers we need to have that faith not to move a tree or in Matthew 18 move a mountain but that God is doing a transformative work in the lives of other believers as well. And then Jesus proceeds with a parable. And again he gives this parable and the relationship between the parable and the disciples' request, and Jesus' commands does not seem like it goes together at all. Okay, which of you, if you have a servant, and he's been out in the fields all day, he's been plowing, he's been taking care of the cows, he comes in, and we're talking about not just a hired hand, someone who comes in for the day, you pay them for a day's wages, and they go, this is someone who would have been a slave or an indentured servant, if we're thinking 1600s time. They get done with the work outside. Is the owner going to say, you know what, you've done a really good job. Why don't you go ahead and sit down by the fire while I cook you a meal? And I'll go ahead and put your feet up and let me fluff that pillow for you. Is that what that master is going to do? No, he's not. The master is instead going to say, okay, I'm glad you're done out there. By the way, it's five past six, I'm hungry, let's get the soup going. The fire's going down, go ahead and get that up. Fluff my pillow, make sure you put a mint on there, okay? Let's go, you're not done working. And then once that servant has finally finished all the outside chores, he's now done with the inside chores, it's close to nine o'clock, it's dark, they don't have electricity, he stumbles home, and now he has to go through the process of cooking his own dinner making sure he has the sustenance and the rest to get back up tomorrow and do it all over again. Again, the relationship to the previous verses is not immediately apparent. This is the first blank under the parable. The servant is not invited to relax. is the second blank. The servant can only relax after the master has been fully served. And again, Jesus asks, does he thank the servant because he did what he was supposed to do? I don't think so. You know, we live in the day and age of the participation trophy. You know, you show up and you deserve something for just showing up. Okay, maybe perfect attendance, maybe. But other than that, no. You want something, you work for it, you earn it, you do what you're supposed to do. We had one year our sports banquet at a school that I was working with and the basketball coach got up and the team had another abysmal year. I think they were three and 20. And this coach gets up and he's introducing the players for this JV team and he introduces this player. He was our starting point guard and he was awesome. And then he introduces this this guy was our starting center and he was awesome. And went through all 20 of these guys, and he was awesome after all of them. And I'm sitting there thinking, if these 20 guys are awesome, where's the trophy? Where's that first place trophy at? But we live in a day and age where we show up, we want to be recognized. Jesus is asking, you know, is because you've done, the servant has done what he's supposed to do, you know, do you want a cookie? The answer is no. You, you don't get those special things just because you did what you were asked to do. The same applies to the disciples. Okay, When, as disciples, we are commanded to do something, there's no reason for us to get any special commendation from God for doing what, as Followers of Christ were supposed to be doing. No, but we live in a Christianized culture where, all right, God, I woke up this morning with the alarm and I read my Bible right away. Go ahead and bless me now. God, I witnessed to this person on the train. Go ahead and bless me now. God, I went to two services on Sunday and I almost went on Wednesday night. Go ahead and bless me now. And we think that God owes us things because we're doing what a disciple, what a servant should be doing. And I have in here this quote, the relationship between God and those serving God is not akin to a patron-client relationship in which the client receives benefactions from the patron in return for service and support. You know, you go out to eat at a nice restaurant, Olive Garden. My wife likes Olive Garden. I think it's overrated. But if you have a good server, you know that your cup is never more than half empty and they're already topping it off, those breadsticks keep on coming, everything is there, you know, why is that server so attentive to you? They are expecting a reward. It's not because they are just simply have a servant attitude and they want to make sure that all of your needs are met. But as Christians, that's what we are. We are the servants of Christ. We're to work for him because that's what we've been called to do. And Jesus asks the question, he confronts them with them you guys have done what I've commanded you to do. And you say, because you haven't gotten any special blessings, we're worthless. Simply because we've done what our duty was to do. Disciples are not worthless, but neither are they worthy of any special rewards for doing what has been commanded. And when we think through this, you know, there are times where God in his love and graciousness and mercy gives us things that we don't deserve. Okay? He, he is extremely merciful. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness or turning, James tells us. That's God's character. He's extremely gracious to us, giving us what we don't deserve. But that doesn't mean he has to. You know, There may be times in our lives where we're checking all of our boxes. This is my Christian duty. I'm doing all these things that I'm supposed to do. God, where are the blessings at? We're doing it with the wrong attitude. And when I think through these three, four different sections that are in here, I think there's one word that can kind of tie all of these together. Okay? And that word is humility. We live in a day and age in which it is inevitable that people are going to turn from Christ. And as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, I need to be humble enough that I am not causing those stumbling blocks because of myself. We live in a day and age where, unfortunately, believers sin against one another. And when we are confronted with that, I need to be humble enough if I'm the one in error. To request forgiveness, but if I'm the one who has been wronged, the humility to actually forgive. You know, increase our faith. How do I, why do I need to increase my faith that God is working in somebody else the same way he's working in me? It's because I have a humility that I'm not this way because of who I am. I am what I am by the grace of God. God. You know, as I go through my life as a servant, you know, not expecting anything special from God. If He wants to reward me, then praise Him. But I'm not serving Christ because I want Him to owe me something, I'm not doing it for any special recognition. You know, as we go through this, I, I think that humility is what the key is. Because if we look at the opposite of humility and its pride, the proud Christian, the arrogant Christian is going to cause stumbling blocks. Why? Because they're right no matter if they are wrong. And that's going to turn people away from Christ. Christ. The arrogant Christian is going to confront others to make himself or herself feel better about themselves, and the arrogant Christian's not going to forgive. The arrogant Christian is not going to trust that God is doing a work in somebody else's heart because they've done it all for themselves anyway. The arrogant Christian is going to expect God to bless them because of all that they've done for him. So as we look at this text this evening, let's be humble serving servants. As we go through the Christian life, striving to maintain that level of humility, recognizing, as Paul tells us, what what do we have that we haven't received? And if we've received it, why do we act as if we haven't? Let's strive for the humility that I believe Christ is calling us towards.